came down with COVID and went into isolation, I not only isolated from the world, uh, but I isolated from my family, from my wife, my kids, and went into the back bedroom for 10 days in isolation. Well, my wife moved up to the front bedroom and we were gonna work hard at not letting it go from me to my wife or to my children. And I can tell you that after the uh, initial heavy physical symptoms were gone, that by the time I got to day seven in isolation, I was about to lose my mind. Uh, it was awful. I was, uh, I was sad, I was lonely, I was probably borderline depressed, I was uh, unmotivated to do anything. And I was struck in that towards the end of those 10 days, in isolation, something I know intellectually, but something I started to feel deeply, and that is that we are absolutely made for relationship. We are relational beings created in the image of a God who is relational and who has been relational for eternity past, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Typically, when we talk about being relational or our need for relationships, we're speaking of another person. And that is true. But there are several types of relationships that need to be right in your life for you to flourish, as God has intended for you to flourish. And that is your relationship with sin, your relationship with others, and your relationship with God. So let's start with your relationship with sin. Everyone has a relationship with sin. Whether you're a believer, a Christian, or not, you have a relationship with sin. And what God does here in, in this section of Exodus is he gives the Ten Commandments. And right after giving the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and before he begins to apply those in detail to every aspect of life in chapters 21 through the half of 23, there's this little section at the end of chapter 20, in between the Ten Commandments and then all these prescriptions of how we're to live. And it's in this little section that he makes provision for your sin through the making of altars. He commands his people to make altars. And he tells them how not to make them, and then he tells them how to make them. And there's a lot to be learned from these instructions. So first, how does he command them not to make altars? Well, look at verse 23 in Exodus 20. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. And then verse 25, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And then verse 26, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now, what's going on in these descriptions of how not to make altars and, and why are they not to make them this way? Well, all of those prescriptions are how worship practices were done in the false religions of the day. So the Canaanites would make gold and silver statues as uh, images of the gods that they had made. And they would carve, they'd take stone and they'd make these beautiful ornate carvings to make an altar and then they would set it high on this kind of step pyramid. And on top of that, their, uh, their worship was fairly obscene. There was prostitution involved. There was nakedness involved. And that explains verse 26, when God says, don't walk up the steps to, to an altar and therefore reveal your nakedness. The whole point was this is how 
Worship happens in the false religions around you. And the common thread of all of these details and the way that worship happened, the common thread was manipulation. Is that the people were trying to, by these beautiful, ornate gold and silver statues, by these carved stone altars, by the steps up to the top of the pyramid, they were, all, they were trying to impress the gods and earn favor with the gods and win favor from the gods. It was a, it was a human endeavor, human effort to try to manipulate the gods. And God says, don't make me any of those kind of altars. So what kind of altar did God want them to make? Look at verse 24. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. God wanted his people to make altars from the earth, what he had created and what he provided. The earth, stones, not human effort or human manipulation, simply what he provided and created were to make the altars. There's no amount of human effort. There's no amount of human manipulation. There's no amount of human performance that can ever satisfy sin or remove sin. Now you say, okay, so God wanted them to make altars from what he provided, but what about the animal that they brought forth for the offering? They were providing that. Well, they were for the peace offering, for the burnt offering. But they were providing that as a, a sign of what God would provide ultimately in the future. When they would make a burnt offering with an animal, the way it would happen is they'd put their hand on the animal's head as the animal was sacrificed. And it was a symbolic identification that this animal is dying instead of the worshiper. The worshiper deserved to die because of their sin, but God had made provision that the animal would die in the place of the worshiper. And all that was pointing forward to what Jesus would do, right? Jesus was our burnt offering. Hebrews 13.10 says that Jesus is our altar. And the point is that God provides both the altar and the offering in Jesus, right? For the provision for removing our sin. So all that we have a responsibility to do in verse 24 is to receive the blessing. That's the only responsibility we have, is to receive the blessing of God's provision for our sin. We don't manipulate. We don't impress. We don't, through human effort, try to make it happen. We simply receive what God does. Now you say, what does this have to do with how you relate to your sin or you relate with your sin? Well, there's two options of how you can relate with your sin. You can relate to your sin through what I would call polishing, polishing it up to impress God, to impress others, or you can relate to your sin by confessing it in its raw and ugly form. Now, what does polishing look like? When you polish your sin, a number of varieties, hiding it, lying about it, making excuses for it, justifying it, maybe imposing your will really hard to try to manage it. All those are versions of, of polishing. And God says, there's no human effort. There's no human performance, no human manipulation that can ever get rid of sin. I've done it all. 
Parents, you have a huge responsibility here of teaching your children how to relate to their sin. How to relate to their sin. The goal for your children is not sinless perfection. Now, when I say that, I'm not minimizing obedience in any way, but the goal is not sinless perfection. If that is your exclusive focus with your children, sinless perfection, that means that you're gonna modify behavior, you're gonna try to get behavior cleaned up, and if that is your exclusive focus, then your children are gonna learn by default to polish their sin. Here's why. If sinless perfection is the exclusive focus, and we all know that everyone, including children, will never be sinlessly perfect. But if your children see that's the only way I can meet expectation, then, then what are they gonna do? They're gonna polish it up. They can't actually be perfect, so they're gonna hide it, justify it, lie about it, whatever it may take. Parents, do you confess your sin and your wrongdoing in front of your children? If you don't, then they have one of two options. They can either, and this happens with younger children, believe that their parents are perfect. I had that experience. My son one time said, Dad, but you're perfect. I went, oh, we've got problems. We've got big problems here. Or the other option is either mom and dad are perfect, or as they get older, they get wiser, and they realize, oh, mom and dad aren't perfect. But man, they do a good job of hiding their sin and just and, and, and making excuses for it or polishing it up, and then guess what they learn? They learn to do the same. The goal for your children is not sinless perfection. The goal for your children is that they would learn how to own their sin in its raw and ugly form, repent, ask forgiveness, and then experience the joy of being forgiven. That's the goal for your kids as they grow up. That's what will teach them right, to relate to their sin rightly. So the question is, are you modeling that for your kids? And are you a safe place for them to turn to when they find themselves in sin, in sin? A safe place to confess it and not hide from it. A safe place to repent, receive forgiveness, and experience the joy of being forgiven. What relationships in your life need to be right for you to flourish? The first is your relationship with sin. But the second is your relationship with others. Your relationship with others. Starting in verse 21, or chapter 21 of Exodus, and going all the way through the middle of 23, we see all these commands from God. Many of them about how we are to relate to one another, how we are to love one another. And we see in verses 16 to 27 of chapter 22, a good section of what it looks like to love others well. But not just others in general, but specifically the weak and the vulnerable and the outsiders and the unprotected. So we're going to look at a few of these examples, and then we're going to tie it together. What's the common thread between all of them? So look at verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. What's going on here? This is a man who pursues and persuades a woman 
to have sex with him outside of marriage, the woman consents. And what does God say? If that happens, what should, what should go on? He says, well, two things. One is the man needs to pay the bride price and he needs to marry her. Well, what's the bride price? Another name for it is the wedding price. That was money that ensured that the woman would be supported if the husband died or the marriage fell apart. It was protection of the woman. And verse 17 says, even if the father of this woman decides not to, to give her in marriage, that man is still expected to pay the wedding price. Because the thought would be as if he stole her virginity, now it might be harder for her to get married. She needs to be supported. And so again, this, these two commands are all about protection of the woman and calling out the man who would seek to get his pleasures met without taking the responsibility of getting married. It was a very selfish act, and God was calling that out, that you need to take responsibility for loving this woman, right? not just getting needs met. Then on to verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. The sojourner means a foreigner. That's someone that's an outsider. Foreigners are always at a disadvantage. Right? They don't know the language. Uh, they don't know the rules of the culture. They have no connections. And so they're absolutely isolated. They're an outsider. And God says, I want you to welcome the foreigner, the outsider, and love them well because guess what? You were a foreigner in Egypt. You were a stranger in a strange land. You were treated, you were mistreated in a strange land. You know what it's like to be the outsider and you receive my love and my grace and my rescue. So in light of that very deep experience of personal grace, now you turn around and welcome the outsider. Let me make this super relevant. Uh, we all know what it's like to be an outsider. Uh, some of you maybe did spend some time in a foreign country and you know what it's like to be a true foreigner, literal foreigner. But if not, you know what it's like even in your culture in your world to feel like an outsider. And I'll give the example of the first time you show up at a church. The first time you ever show up at a church, which for some of you, that may be this morning. But when you show up at a church as an outsider, you don't know the, the language, you don't know the cultural expectations of what happens in this church, you don't know where to go. If you have children, you might not know where to drop your kids off. You come in and you sit down and everybody's talking and you go, I don't know anybody. You feel awkward before and after. We've all had that experience. God says, welcome the outsider. Welcome the person who is isolated because you too know what that feels like and you too were once that. Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. Now, God gives some strong language here. And what I want you to see that strong language as, that's, a, that's revealing his heart of compassion for the most vulnerable and the weakest members of society, the widow and the orphan. He says, I want you to love and provide for and protect the widow and orphan. Deuteronomy 10 says it this way. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. 
Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Widows and orphans, the most vulnerable, the weakest members, the most unprotected, God's heart is filled with compassion for them. And so he calls his people to be filled with compassion for those that are most vulnerable. I would say the most common mistreatment of widows and orphans is not active oppression or active taking advantage of. It's just neglect. It's ignorance. It's, it's seeing it out there, but, but not acting upon it. And then verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to them and shall not exact, exact interest from him. God's people weren't allowed to lend money to the poor and then charge interest. He didn't want them taking advantage of the poor and charging interest and making them even poorer as they got richer. He didn't want them to take advantage of the poor. In the sphere of your life, who is unprotected? Who is vulnerable? Who is weak? Who's an outsider? And then the question is, how are you relating to those people? How are you relating? You, say, you may say, listen, I'm not oppressing them. I'm not taking advantage of them. Again, probably the most common mistreatment is that of neglect or that of ignorance. Like I see them, but I'm just not doing anything about it. I'm not reaching out to provide and to protect and to love. Then the second question is, why not? Let me just put everybody at ease here. We're all guilty of not loving, protecting the weak and the vulnerable, okay? Question is, why do we not love them well? Why do we not love these people well that God has huge compassion for? Well, right in the middle of these commands, we find the answer in verse 20. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone. The reason that we don't love people well, especially the weak and the vulnerable, is because of idolatry, worshiping a false God. This was the consistent message of the prophets to Israel throughout the Old Testament. The prophets would always call God's people out for idolatry, worshiping a false God, and then for not taking care of the poor, not welcoming the outsider and the foreigner. Idolatry always produces a failure to love others well. Idolatry always produces a failure to love others well. Now, let's see how this fleshes out in these examples that we just looked at. Right, so starting in verse 16, right, the man who seduces. The man worshiping the God of pleasure seeks to get his physical needs met without loving the woman. Right, it's a selfish seeking to get needs met and not loving the woman. Or the person moving on to the uh, sojourner, don't wrong the sojourner or the foreigner. The person who's worshiping the God of status or the God of approval will walk into a room and seek out the movers and the shakers and the influencers rather than the outsider because the outsider offers them nothing in return. Or moving on to the widow and the orphan, the person worshiping the God of comfort 
seeks rest and fails to meet the needs of the widow and the orphan. Because we all know that reaching, meeting the needs of a widow or an orphan takes a lot of time, which can chisel away at rest, chisel away at comfort. Or moving on to the poor, the person worshiping the God of security ignores the financial and physical needs of the poor in order to save money to feed the God of security. What we learn here is that idolatry always produces a failure to love others well. So two questions. Number one, who are you failing to love well? And then second question, what false God are you worshiping that is keeping you from loving that person or those people well? What relationships in your life need to be right for you to flourish? First, your relationship with sin. Second, your relationship with others. But finally, your relationship with God. Your relationship with God. In verses 28 through 31 of chapter 22, God calls us to relate to him in a certain way. And what is that way that he calls us to relate to him? Well, look at verse 28. You shall not revile God. That word revile means to take lightly. So it could literally read, you shall not take God lightly. I remember my first year of grad school at the University of Texas at Austin. I drove a really sweet red Mazda pickup truck. And that winter, we got a big snow in Austin, which that just doesn't happen a lot in Austin, Texas. Big snow, lots of snow and ice, roads covered. And I decided I was gonna get in my red pickup truck and drive from my apartment complex to the graduate school office. So I get in my truck and I start going and I, I had never owned a pickup truck before. And I learned quickly that pickup trucks, the back end especially, tend to swerve and slide and drift in snow and ice. And I probably barely got out of the parking lot, turned corners and realized I can't go anywhere because the truck was just wanting to spin out. And I learned that to drive a pickup truck in the snow and ice, you need to put some sandbags in the bed of the truck over the wheels, some weight, right, that can keep the wheels down and engaged with the snow and ice. That's a, that's a picture of what it means to take God lightly and the result of taking God lightly. That when you take God lightly, you drift and, swir- and, and, and slide back and forth between false gods. There, nothing's grounding you. There's no weight to ground your life and heart in God. So you, you drift, you just slide and you drift back and forth. Specifically what happens when you take God lightly. Look at verse 29. God lays out a couple prescriptions here that are just real evidence of taking him lightly. Verse 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. When we take God lightly, our money and resources slide back and forth between the false gods in our lives. Money and resources, we're not generous, they just slide back and forth to the, between the God of the day, right? Verse 29, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. 
The firstborn son, as we saw in Exodus 13, actually represented the whole family. When you take God lightly, the whole family, parents, children, drift back and forth between the cultural gods of the day. Or verse 30, you shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Oxen and sheep represented the means by which people made a living. We're not in an agricultural society here, but it's the equivalent of vocation. It's the equivalent of your career. When you, don't, when you take God lightly, your vocation and your career just slides and drifts back and forth between the gods of the day, power or money or status or reputation. If I were to ask you the question, are you taking God lightly? That's a subjective question. I, 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 don't, I don't know if I'm taking God lightly. Well, the beauty is God gives us here some real tangible evidence of if we're taking him lightly. That if we are taking God lightly, then we are, we're not generous with our money and our resources. We're not directing them towards God's kingdom and his purposes just using it on self. Or if we're taking God lightly, right, our family, specifically our children, we're not, the priority relationship with God is not at the top. And so school, sports, academics, hobbies, whatever it may be, recreation begins to just take, cause the family to slide back and forth and not be grounded. Or if you're, if you're taking God lightly, your career, really long hours in the office, for super prolonged periods of time or, or not treating people well in the office, right? Suddenly your career has uh, taken on a life of its own with the false gods of the day. It could be pleasure, power, money, whatever you're working hard for. And again, your career just drifts back and forth between the gods of the day. So as you look at that evidence that God gives, is there evidence you're taking God lightly? Again, let me put you at ease. Yes, you are. I am. We all do. We all do. That's called sin. We're all guilty of taking God lightly. So what, what do we do about that? You know, a sermon like this that ends at this point, and it's 2021, a couple weeks in, you know, you can just lock down and say, okay, that's it. This year, I'm, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give my money to the church and to missionaries and to Neighbors in need, I'm, I'm gonna be generous, right? Or you say, you know what? Our family, we are putting God at the top. We're gonna make sure that school and sports and all these things don't get in the way. Or you say, hey, my career, I'm done working the long hours. I'm done working the long hours. I'm gonna serve God. I'm gonna use my career to serve God. Those aren't bad things, but if that's your response, your immediate response, that would be like me with my red pickup truck in Austin, Texas, saying, you know what? I'm going to drive this truck to the office today. Here's the problem. It didn't matter how slow I went in my truck. It didn't matter how hard I gripped the steering wheel. It didn't matter what route I took. I was going to spin out and not make it to the office. You say, well, then what is the proper response if you feel convicted about taking God lightly? Look at verse 29, end of verse 29. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. How did they give their firstborn sons to God? 
Well, if you remember back to Exodus 13, they gave or consecrated their firstborn sons by offering an animal as a sacrifice. The sins of the family, the sin of the family taking God lightly, deserved death. And the firstborn was to be the sacrifice, but God allowed them to sacrifice an animal in place of the firstborn so the firstborn could live. And of course, that was happening until God would finally, ultimately, offer up his own firstborn son, Jesus, in the place of his children. That God exhausted his resources so that the glory of Jesus could be poured into your hearts. God, he says, don't take me lightly. God doesn't take your sin lightly. God takes your sin very seriously, so seriously that he would give his only son. What a tremendous act of love that, your, that his son would die in your place. So that after rising from the dead, the glory of Christ could be poured into your hearts. Imagine back to the red pickup truck. I'm in Austin, Texas. I, I realize I can't drive this truck to the office. I park it. I go upstairs in my apartment. But then two hours later, my resolve kicks back in. I'm like, no, I'm going to drive this truck to the office today. So I go downstairs and I go out and lo and behold, in the back of my truck are 20 sandbags. Somebody had put 20 sandbags in the back of my truck and I get in my truck and I drive straight to the office and the back end doesn't spin or slide or swerve and I get there. The glorious weight of Jesus Christ himself has been poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. And it is the glorious weight of Christ inside you that keeps you from drifting and sliding between the false gods of the day. Christ in you empowers you to give generously, to lead and shepherd your family so that priority relationship with God is over everything. It's the glorious weight of Christ in you that empowers you to use your vocation and your career for God's kingdom purposes and to glorify him. Not taking God lightly means prioritizing your relationship with Jesus Christ, knowing him intimately, knowing him deeply, and when you prioritize your relationship with Christ and knowing him, then you find that your life flourishes in all of these categories. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you forgive us for taking you lightly? In light of that, we thank you that you did not and do not take our sin lightly, that you took it so seriously you gave your son in our place so that we could, moving forward, freely own our sin, confess it in its raw form, repent and know that we're forgiven by the person and work of your son, Jesus.
Father, thank you for pouring the glory of Christ into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And that it's that glorious weight in us that keeps us from drifting back and forth between gods of the day. And when we happen to, to repent quickly, find ourselves back at center. And Father, thank you for this meal, this Lord's Supper, that is such a tangible picture of what you have poured into our hearts. Pray that as we eat and drink, that you would do that work of opening our eyes to the reality of Christ. We pray this all in his name. Amen.